All right. But yeah. Uh, I am recording. Go. Hey there, I'm Alistair Clay from class-pr.com and I'm here with Jeff Smith on Vroom Vroom Veer. Let's go. Whoop whoop. Thank you, sir. Okay, I have to hit stop. I'll be right back. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Monica Shaw, thank you so much for being on Vroom Vroom Beer and welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going great. I'm excited to be here. Technical glitches aside, it's going to be a great day. Yay. <laughs> so talk a little bit about uh, RevenueBreakthrough.com and what you're most excited about in your business today. So Revenue Breakthrough is all about what I do at Revenue Breakthrough is I help women entrepreneurs and a lot and some amazing men as well build their businesses, make more money, double their incomes within the next 12 to 18 months. And I think the most exciting piece for me about Revenue Breakthrough at the moment and what I do is all about the fact that we're really changing the conversation about money on the planet. Um, I what like I've really that. noticed That's a good is that idea. <laughs> when I can work with people to generate more of it, they have an ability to talk about money and to create things with their money in a completely different way. That's cool. That, you know, I think a lot of people have sort of like strained relationships with money. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> they, they, I mean, yeah. people, uh, people seem to be really, um, really stuck around their money and, uh, and stuck around not being able to handle it, not being able to figure out, how to generate it. And it's something that causes so much strain and worry for people. And what I've noticed is the more that we can talk about it and figure it out, the better off we can be around it. Yeah. So you've got, you know, like, I like it. Okay. So before I get too far into the money story, you got me excited now because uh, uh, money, money talk is like uh, one of my favorite things to talk about, but this is room for beer. So we have to go back in time and get a little bit of your life story. So let's go back in time. And talk a little bit about like where you grew up, um, what you were like in high school, something like that. Sure. So <laughs> what I was like in high school. Well, I was an interesting kid because I went through high school. I worked with animals and oh, wow, uh, I worked nice. at the Cincinnati Zoo. And uh, so I my first career choice was that I wanted to be a veterinarian. And so I worked with animals and I didn't really talk to people much. Um, I talked more <laughs> okay. to animals all through high school and into college than I did to people, which was interesting. I actually found out in college that I'm allergic to animal hair and I had to, to choose a completely different career path. But what that did for me, all that talking to animals is that it just, it's really interesting because it heightened my sense of knowing uh, people in a different way because I can kind of read between the lines around what people are saying and doing and what they're not saying as much as what they are saying. So it's made it very interesting. Yeah. Animals are really good listeners. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they do I communicate a lot, when really. When I first found out that I was allergic to animals, my dad was like, well, you can work with people and you can, you know, work with babies or something like that. And I remember being like, no, I don't want to talk to people all day long. And now that's what I do for a living. <laughs> Talking to people all day long. Well, uh, maybe you just needed that time, that growth time with animals, right? To you were What you were doing, you were really like learning a lot about nonverbal communication. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I think we all have different ways of, of, of learning the skills that we're going to use later in life. And I think that was one of them for me. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. So working with animals in high school, that's, that's an, I've never heard that one before. (laughs) Good for you. That's fun. Yeah. (laughs) So what did you, what did you study when you went to college? I, uh, when I went to college originally, um, I, I was studying environmental science. And then when I found out that I couldn't work with animals anymore, I actually studied religion and, uh, I, I, my, it was religion, environmental science and writing were my majors completely, totally unrelated and somewhat, um, somewhat not connected, but they all served me in different ways. Uh, because it, my religion major had me read every spiritual text out there, like of every major religion. I love so it's that, really yeah. interesting now mm. to see the sort of spread of spirituality through everything that people are doing and to really be able to connect it to some of the stuff that I learned about. Yeah, no, it's great. You know, um, it's, it, when you study different religions, you get a broader perspective and I think it makes you more accepting and tolerant of all the differences. Right. And you also yeah. see the, the, the commonalities and, and the, and the universals that, you know, basically people are people, right. <laughs> you know, we all want Absolutely. essentially the same stuff, you know? Um, so yeah, so that sounds like a fun experience. It doesn't sound like a real party experience. Um, it wasn't, I (laughs) I mean, you know, we, I had a blast, don't get me wrong, but I was, I was not like in a, you know, a total party girl. I was much more, I had six, seven close girlfriends. I really hung out with them for most of my four years and we're all still friends to this day. So nice, nice. So what was your first job, uh, out of college? I did consulting out of college. So wow. I went so not and a worked real job. for American Management Systems, which is now owned by Deloitte Consulting. Okay. And I did pro- like technology. I did, it was a lot of project management and change management consulting for little companies um, between college and business school. Okay. Wow. Was it fun? It was. It was a lot of fun. It was back in the heyday of consulting when the economy was going wild because the internet boom was happening at the same time. So it was really amazing. Like we had the most amazing clients. <laughs> so yeah. Really? Really? Oh, what? So were you like helping people figure out what the internet was and how you could make money? Was that sort of what you were yeah. doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was interesting. I mean, we worked with uh, I remember one of our clients was Ralph Lauren, um, the polo company, and they mm. were building their first website. If you can imagine that, like wow. back in the day, they were putting all their brands on their website. So like and, 1990 um, We didn't build something. it for them, but we just did some consulting for them on, you know, how to put their brands on their site and how to organize it all. And at the time, the woman that was running their website, in just, their website division was 28 years old because that was sort of the in thing to do was to hire a young person. So it was, uh, it was really <laughs> well, interesting. You kind of had to, right? <laughs> 
it, you didn't really have a lot of choice. I, I, yeah. I mean, all, all the older people were like, oh, what's a website, right? So yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So that was probably like, like late 90s, early 2000s, something like yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So, so how many jobs did you have before you eventually, I know, I think, uh, let's see here, if I can remember right from your bio, there was a job right before at, um, I think it was some sort of fashion. Oh, there we go. L'Oreal of Paris, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I went back to business school, um, and then after that consulting job and then went to L'Oreal, um, and I, uh, I went to, I went back to Chicago, went to Kellogg for business school and, um, at Kellogg, the, everybody there, it's just known for their marketing program. So then I went and worked for L'Oreal Paris as a brand manager and helped to launch products in their skincare line. Okay. So what was that, what was that culture like? Was it fun? Was it like just super stressful or <laughs> it was, <laughs> <a> both? <laughs> um, yeah, it was interesting. I'll tell you a story about L'Oreal. It was, uh, I stuck out there like a sore thumb. The culture was a bit like uh, the, a devil, the Devil Wears Prada, if you've seen that movie. Like, <clears> yes. I couldn't <laughs> watch that movie for a number of years because right. it, was too close. Uh, it reminded me so much of L'Oreal. It's wow. very much a, the alpha um, woman. a culture full of beautiful, beautiful women who loved makeup and hair from a very young age and who are super smart and, and are really sort of running the show over there. So if you don't fit into that, um, profile of absolutely being in adoration of beauty, um, it can be a hard place <laughs> to right. hang out there. Right. And I remember there was a particular moment where it was 2 a.m. and I was across the table from my boss and uh, she was young. She was maybe 28. And okay. that day the plant had broken down and they couldn't use the bottles that we needed them to use for a moisturizer that we were launching. So I went to the store and I bought all these different moisturizer bottles. And so and we had to figure out which bottle we were going to use or what it was going to be like that we could send over to the plant. So we're literally sitting there and I'm, I'm picking up a bottle and I'm dumping the lotion out of it. <laughs> and then I'm picking up the next bottle and I'm dumping the lotion out of it. And then we're examining the bottle. And then I pick up the next bottle and we're dumping the lotion out of them and out of it. And it's two 30 in the morning. And I look over, my boss looks at me and she goes, is this not the most fun thing you've ever done? And I kind of looked at her and I, and I, I didn't know what she was talking about. I thought we'd like entered the twilight zone. And then I realized that she was serious. Like this for her, she was really enjoying this whole process. And I got that about her and I, and she actually ended up shooting up the corporate ladder because she loved everything that she was doing. And in that moment, I really got clear that I did not love everything that I was doing (laughs) and that I needed to leave to find something that I could be as passionate about as she was about the work there. Now, how, how did you play that off? Did, did you, uh, in that moment, were you like, yeah, it's amazing. Or were you- <laughs> <laughs> I think I did. I'm yeah. not a very good liar. So right. I'm pretty certain she knew, um, right, right. what, you know, where I stood on the matter, but, um, I probably said something like, yeah, this is great. And then wondered in my mind, you know, how I was going to leave, <laughs> you know, leave as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. I think like uh, many, many moments of my Air Force career were were very much similar to that scenario where, 
You know, I don't know. Like I, I ran into a lot of folks that were really super in love with their jobs in the military. And that's great. You know, that's, that's where you want to be. You know, um, I was never like thoroughly enamored with every little aspect of, of life in the military, but the overall general experience was a good time, especially when, um, when you ran into like, you know, say like boss, boss's boss and, uh, the commander, we are all like, like on the same page, you know, brain linked kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And you hang out and you're like, you just have that simpatico kind of sort of situation is like, wow, this is the best ever. You know, if you get along with like the top three people in the organization, it's like the best working environment ever. It's like having fun at work. Right. So, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Right. Okay, so now uh, talk about the transition from your last job in corporate to starting a business and going out on your own because that's scary as hell. Yeah, I mean, it was (laughs) um, moving from L'Oreal and uh, it was an interesting thing because I, at L'Oreal, I did three product launches a year. So I knew how to, I knew how to launch, I knew how to market a product to the market and I thought leaving L'Oreal, I, I really thought I was hot shit. I thought, oh, I'll have this entrepreneur thing worked out. <laughs> right. I, <laughs> I know what's it going was on. It's going to be right. fun and immediate. And it wasn't. I mean, the transition uh, within about 12 months of leaving L'Oreal, I was over $25,000 in debt for my own business. Right. And okay. it was devastating because I couldn't figure out how to pay off the debt. It wasn't so much that the debt bothered me. It was that it was accumulating more and more and I wasn't making a dent in it. Yeah. Oh, that stinks. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would say more, more people out there than not are in a similar scenario. So it's like a debt epidemic going on in, in, in the country right now. So I think most people can relate. I can relate. I, I did that when I, right before I got married, I had all this idiot debt that, uh, from partying from when I was in the air force, um, you know, and, and I carried that into the marriage. So yeah, I know exactly what that stinks. You know, you're sitting there and you're, I don't know, you're, you're making some sort of payment on it and it's just bothering you. And you're like, how do I make this go away? (laughs) So, okay. So what happened next? So, for a while, I just did everything I could to generate money. Um, mm. And, you know, because I, I really liked the idea of being an entrepreneur. And I think, I think that's like an in term right now is I run a business or I'm an entrepreneur. And I, right, right. it was funny because I was working more than 60 hours a week trying to figure the thing out so that I wouldn't have to work 40 hours for somebody else. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yes. So it's like, um, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. And, um, and so I did everything I could to generate money. Like I, I walked dogs, I cat sitted, I Mm. did focus groups, I rented my apartment out. And, uh, that was, that was right back in the day when Airbnb was starting. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was a particular week where, 
I had rented my apartment out for six days in a row and, uh, and it was actually eight days and it was, you know, three days at somebody's house and then another three days on somebody else's couch and then a two days on somebody else's couch. And I was schlepping all around New York to try to find couches that were available. And in, in New York, you know, an extra couch or an extra bedroom is like a gold mine. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. Uh, I finally was going home and I got on the subway and I got out of the subway. It was the BDFQ on 63rd street. And I had two bags on one arm and then two bags on another arm and then a roller bag across my, my a roller bag in my hand and a bag across my chest. Wow. And I'm like walking up the steps in the subway and people are running by me and knocking the bags off because, you know, New Yorkers are so polite that way. <laughs> right. And I got to the top of the stairs and I looked to the left and the elevator was broken. And I looked to the right and the escalator was closed. Uh-huh. And I looked and there was three more flights of stairs to get to street level. And I was just so tired. And in that moment, I just put my stuff on the ground. And then I sat down on the New York subway floor. And you know you've hit rock bottom <laughs> when you sit down on I'm a in... New York subway floor. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. At that point, I just, the tears I were running and I got really clear that I had to stop. That, you know, I had become like a literal bag lady so that I could run my business. Right. And I, I just wasn't getting anywhere with it. And what I got really clear on is that I was giving myself the next 12 months to figure it out, to really try to work out how I was going to generate money. And if I couldn't figure it out, I decided I was going to go back and get a job. Right. So that's what I did. I spent the, the 12 months really working. I went back to my business school friends. I talked to my dad who sold a company when I was in college and, uh, I hired mentors and business coaches. And what I got really clear on is that everything that I was doing wasn't focused on generating money. I was doing everything backwards and in the wrong order. Everything that I was doing was just doing things that were maybe moving my business forward in some direction, but I wasn't doing things in an order that made sense to make money. So I was working twice as hard as I needed to be and making half as much. And I noticed that, you know, when I talk to entrepreneurs now, so many of them are doing the same thing. So they're just basically without a plan. They're With, just yeah. just kind of like flailing, <laughs> right? Is that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. They're flailing and, and their focus is on, see, the way that marketing and strategy is taught right now in the business industry is it's a lot of piecemeal things. So on the one end, somebody's going to teach you to do a podcast and on the other end, somebody's going to teach you to write a book and and then somebody's doing newsletters and somebody else is doing videos. And so it's very easy to flit from one strategy to the next strategy, which is exactly what I was doing is one week I was writing a book and the next week I was uh, building my website out and the next week I was doing a membership site. And it wasn't actually week to week. I mean, you know, it was more like sometimes month to month or a couple months, but either way, the strategies I was choosing were not actually the right timing for me. Okay. And so, for example, I at the you know when I I wrote seven chapters of a book. I have two books now, and I think books are awesome. But I wrote the first chapters of of a book when I couldn't afford to like pay my grocery bill. So what I should have been doing at that time is really focusing on sales conversations with clients. And instead, I was thinking somehow a book was going to save the business. Mm, and I right. put out a 
a membership program when I only had 250 people on my list. And so three people joined and then two people dropped out. And again, it was just the wrong timing. Like you need about, now I tell my clients, you need like 10,000 people before you start a membership program. Right. So ultimately it was just the wrong order of things. Mm. And I, you know, until I got really clear on the order that it should be, and I figured out my five steps to really generating money, things didn't start to shift, but they did ultimately. So when I figured out my five steps, I did them and I really shifted my relationship with money. And then that year, within 12 months, I paid off the $25,000 of debt. Um, I put $12,000 in the bank. And then every year after that, I was able to double or triple my revenue. Um, And then we crossed seven figures in 2013. And then we've been at that level ever since. And you know, my whole goal now is to really help other small business owners get out of the money crisis because we really do have an epidemic. I mean, there's so many people out there who are running businesses but are, aren't sleeping at night because right. the debt is so high or the cash flow is so low and they're trying to pursue their dreams in the hope that the dream will make it happen but the money's just not there to create the calm and the peacefulness and the ability to have fun and create a life that's really worth living. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if in your state, your internal state is going to be all jumbled and like, you know, it's going to lead to that sort of like flailed sort of behavior, right? When you're all, I don't know, what's the internal state? What, 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 should, what should we call it? It's more well, like... It's um, mostly shame. Shame. You know, okay. I mean, all right. Yeah. I mean, it's sure. you know, from what I have seen, what's so interesting is that when you tell people you're a business owner, that you're in, you're in business, or even frankly, if you're not in business, if you're just at a high level professionally, people make the assumption that you're making money. So even if they don't know whether you are or you're not, the very notion that you're out of alignment creates this inner shame for people. Oh, and then there's right. the shame. Okay. Then there's the people that actually know what's going on, like your family, your your husband, your wife, your kids, right. your mom, your dad. They know that you're working your tail off doing something and they know you're not making money because you know they see your figures or they know what you're spending your money on and then it becomes external shame. And it's just it's kind of it's a crisis right now around people really feeling out like they they're not they they have to hide behind this piece of like of the money piece like they almost I hear people say all the time like I don't want to make the money I don't need to make the money because they're trying to make themselves feel better about the fact that they're not Mm, right wow interesting so shame would would have not been the first thing that came to my mind but you're (laughs) right you're right I I think uh, I think we all do, do go through that it's almost like um, how, how much money we have and how we make money that all becomes part of our identity. Right. Um, so then if, you know, if, if things aren't going right, it kind of like bleeds through. Right. So it's like, you're putting on this face for the world saying, look at me, I'm, I'm awesome and I'm professional and successful and everybody can tell you're not (laughs) right. Wow. Interesting. So, okay. So is this where you figured out like your money type? Yeah. So that's part of the, um, the first step is that, you know, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, when you're trying to eat healthy or you're trying to lose weight, 
you, you, everybody knows that you're not supposed to eat cookies, you know, if you're trying to lose weight and yet we're all eating cookies at like three or four o'clock and, <laughs> right? and it's, it, and it's because there's an emotional reason behind it. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a belief system that we have to work through so that we're not, we're not dependent on the sugar. Well, it's the same thing with numbers and money. Like ultimately if you struggle with raising your rates or you struggle with asking for money or you struggle with sending invoices out or you struggle with uh, talking about money or looking at your numbers, usually there's, it's because you have an issue with money or an issue with the numbers. And when I say issue, I mean you don't like it or you feel like if you look at it too much, it is not out of alignment with who you are. Mm. And so if you continue to hold that belief, it's going to be very difficult for you to look at your numbers, to track your numbers, to know things like conversion rates and revenue and profit, and to be able to actually deliver the information that you need to figure out how much money you're making and to make more of it. And so one of the things that I realized is that if you can shift your relationship with money so that you actually can fall in love with money, that you're not afraid of looking at your numbers, suddenly all the business activities become easier. And the, one of the first steps to that is figuring out what money type you are. Right. Um, okay. And I, you know, I have four different money types and it just, they just sort of explain who, like how you connect with money and what money's all about for you. And it also explains your own behaviors and your activities around money. Like for the first type, for me, I'm an avoider. Okay. And if you know that you're an avoider if you don't look at your mail, you don't look at your bank accounts, right, you right. often don't know what your numbers are, mm. um, or maybe you know them for your personal life, but you don't know for them for your business, or you know them for your business, but you don't know them for your personal life. So it's, um, and because you're avoiding looking at your numbers, you're really depending on things like manifesting and visualizing and setting intentions and goals for creating what you want. And in a lot of senses, you're probably pretty good at doing all of that. But the problem with it is that typically when I meet avoiders, you're overworking and you're overworrying. And, and it's you're overworking and overworrying because you don't actually know how much work you need to be doing to create a certain amount of money. And you're constantly worried that you're not doing enough. So there's a tendency to work, work, work all the time because you're not actually looking at your numbers. And I meet a lot of avoiders who are total visionaries, really big picture thinkers, and really great at creating and manifesting and making their goals happen, Mm -hmm. but they, they just don't have an ability to stop. And it can be very exhausting. Right. Yeah. And you're going to get burnt out. Right. Yeah, you're going to get exhausted. And so what's the how do you get over that hump? Well, I mean, if you're an avoider, uh, one of the best ways is to start looking at your numbers. And uh, one way to do that is to create a money date with yourself every week where you just sit down, you take 15 or 20 minutes, you look at all your credit cards, you look at your revenue, you look at your expenses, you look at other numbers in your business, like what marketing is working, what your conversion rates are. Um, other numbers that are important for your t- particular business model. And even if they don't change every week, just the act of looking at it is going to have you start to shift your behavior and start and, and really start to understand the connection between cause and effect, right? Mm. Because money is an effect and what you're doing is a cause. Right. So if you can start to understand what did I do to cause this money to come in, 
you can really get smarter about repeating it and about yeah. magnifying the amount of money that's coming in. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a, it's you're getting a little bit more less shame and just more clarity on just being able to to look at it. And absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And just right. start to understand it because what you resist persists. And what you focus on grows, right? So if you're resisting looking at your money, resisting looking at your numbers, Uh your money issues will persist. And the more you focus on your numbers, you focus on the money, the more that it will grow. Now, I have a question for you because I I have an interesting sort of like I've read a lot of investing books. And uh, uh, one of the one of the things that some investor type um, advice givers, I'll say book writers, (laughs) they'll say, um, especially when you're invested in something like the stock market, right. Um, is to not overly obsess about like the float, like the, the give and take of the stock market moving up and down every day can like just put you on this emotional roller coaster and drive you nuts. Right. So is that like another money type, somebody that's like obsessively looking at their numbers, like in a way that's a little too much. Yeah. I mean, well, that's in relation to the fact that there's, you know, there's so much up and down related to that. Right. And it's actually one of the reasons I say, if you're going to do a money date, you want to do it once a week. Uh-huh. So you're not driving yourself crazy every right. day, Once a week you know, is trying good. to figure yes. out how right, the number right. shifted. Yeah. But what's interesting is there is another money type called saver and savers are people that would rather save money than do right. anything else. R- okay. And, and you know, you're a saver if you've got savings, you also know you're a saver, even if you don't have savings, but you've got debt and you know, to a, to the penny exactly how much you need to be paying to pay off that debt. Mm. And there's, a, you know, obviously all these types, they're not meant to be positive or negative and everybody falls into one category. Um, but you're, you know that you're out of balance. It's really whether you're out of balance or in balance for your type. Okay. And for a saver, you're out of balance if, and it's a little akin to what you're saying, if you're so busy saving that you're working all the time. Right. So you're literally, Mm. you know, I I meet women like this all the time and um, who are and and men, too. uh, But I uh, who are literally getting up at 7 a.m., working all day till 10 or 11 at night. Mm -hmm. And and then they're stopping in between to, like, take care of family or kids. But they they're so afraid to hire staff to support them that they'd rather just do all the work themselves. And in the process, they're fully exhausting themselves and also uh, taking them away from family and friends right. as well. And then I've also met savers who are stuck, like you're at a plateau in your business or in your professional life, and you there's too afraid to get help. They're too afraid to invest in getting help. Mm. Um, and because of that, they'd rather be in pain. They'd rather be stuck. Um, and there's, there's something that saving – is a good thing, right? To a moderate, in, a, in moderation. Right. But if I you're would, saving yes. to the point yeah. where you are robbing yourself of joy, exactly. where where the joy has stopped or the growth has stopped, then you know that there's just it's you're really being driven by fear, and it's exactly. not a reasonable amount it's of like, saving. Right. It's almost like there's not enough. There's no amount of money that that's going to be enough. Almost right. 
if if you're if you're so rigid and fixed in that I must save and must make the pile bigger at all costs, and someday in the future <laughs> I'll have enough and I'll be able to relax a little, right? It's and that's true. that's not it, what but, we want to do, though. I mean, that's we want to uh, enjoy life now. I think it's, it's true. Yeah. I mean, that's a total trait of a saver: is it's never enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. I just want to keep saving. And I remember after I made my first $10,000, I went home and my dad's a very successful entrepreneur. He bought a company, built it, and then sold it when I was in college, an engineering firm. And I went home and I was starting my business and I looked at him and I had made my first $10,000 and I had saved my first $10,000. And I was like, what should I do with it? And he goes, spend it. And I looked at him and I was like, what do you mean spend it? He's like, the whole reason that you are making money is to be able to use it on beautiful things. And you're going to be more motivated to go out and make $10,000 more if you actually spend some of it and so that you, because you have to feel the joy in order to be connected to why you do what you do. I love that. And, and yeah. if you're, if you're saving, if you're, if you're waiting for life to be better for you to spend that money or for you to enjoy themselves yourself, all you're doing is you're, you're, you're killing your own motivation to do more. Mm, right. That's like, like when you said you, you can't, you have to be careful when you say no to spending kind of idea. Absolutely. Like there's, there's this piece of, Yes, there's a, you know, you always want to look and make sure that you're, you're making smart decisions. Don't get me wrong. But I, I also think it's like the middle, middle, middle road kind of idea. You know, it's been proven that your, your largest drive comes from connecting with what you love most. And it's great to connect with what you want, love most in your head, but it's even better to be able to experience it <laughs> like vacation <laughs> and clothes or family time, whatever, or whatever it is, it yeah, is. Whatever it and is. the more you can connect and experience the joy of the outcome of that money, the more likely it is that you're going to be motivated to continue making more and more. Mm, right. Yeah, no, I get it. So yeah, it, it, I think like, um, I did a whole series of blog posts way back when about like, you know, how, how people think about money. And, uh, it's fascinating, you know, at, at a certain point when you start like, you know, first I I went through, you know, like several phases or steps, right. In my relationship with money where it's like, okay, now we don't have debt. Oh, and now we've, we, the last four cars we bought were with cash, you know, and, oh, look, the pile's really big. (laughs) Right. It can, it can get a little like, um, it, each phase has a new set of fears, I think, yeah. if that makes sense. So you've gone through some of that. So where are you now in your relationship with money? It's got to be a lot different than when you started. Absolutely. I, I mean, at the beginning, I, I feel like at the beginning of my business, I remember you know, an entire summer of living off of the checking overdraft, you know, hoping that that <laughs> right, was going to be right, enough there. Right, right. Um, and moments when I couldn't, when I go out to dinner with my friends and I'd try to catch the waitress on the way in so that I could tell her to make sure that I got a separate check. And then I would make sure that I would order the heartiest appetizer on the menu because that was all that I could afford for that mm. particular meal. Right. Um, and you know, when you're, you go through business. I, I call those stories the broke stories because I think everybody has them. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, especially, especially when you're starting and you're. Um, and I remember at that time, 
feeling like money wasn't my friend, you know, that it was mm. always kind of coming in and then leaving that I couldn't really count on it. Right. And I, I do an exercise with people where I have them come up with what their voices are. And for me that the, the voices in their head about money, like what is, what is the voice in your head saying? And for me, one of my major voices was I can't count on money. Like money is fickle. It'll come and it'll go. And I made a conscious decision to shift that voice to money is my rock. It is always there for me. Mm. And it was, and what was interesting is it wasn't overnight or anything, but the more I thought of money being my rock, the more it turned out to be my rock. And that has been the money voice that I've held on to ever since then. And now, even when the money's not there, I know it is there because it is my rock. And it's so interesting how it keeps coming back to me uh, because I shifted my voice around it and because I don't, I, I actually trust it. Um, and, and for a lot of people, it's really about asking yourself, what are the voices in your head telling you about money? What are they saying? And is it time to change them so that you can have a different external experience? Mm -hmm. And I love the, um, now I know you're into yoga, but are you also into like a, a meditation practice too? Or is um, yoga yeah, your meditation? I do. I, just do <laughs> I do a silent meditation, but yeah, I don't have like a particular kind that I do, but I right, just. Right watch the breath and bring it back. That's exactly, that's it. I mean, it's, you don't, you know, you don't need to go to an ashram in India. <laughs> we have an ashram yeah. in India. It's called the internet. It's right there. Just go get yeah. it. <laughs> I'm with yeah. you. It doesn't, you know, I, I had this conversation with another guest that the, uh, there's a lot of folks uh, like celebrities that are really into transcendental meditation. And I think the training costs like a thousand dollars, right? Yeah. And, and my first thought, was I don't want to pay a thousand dollars for something that's free, right? <laughs> I've already yeah. I've already done the reading of the books, and you know, uh, I actually met Deepak Chopra in person. He was amazing, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it was free. Um, but then I had the thought of, for some people, maybe um, spending a thousand dollars puts them in the the mindset of having skin in the game. So that's okay. Right. If that's what it takes for them to get into meditation and keep a practice going, uh, all the time means, okay, they spent a thousand dollars for a mantra and they had some really good training. Hey, cool. Good. <laughs> Whatever works. Exactly. So talk a little bit about this, uh, kind of related the slowdown solution, because I think it's gotta be related to a little bit of yoga and, uh, and mindful meditation. Absolutely. I mean, so I had been uh, running my business for a number of years, probably four four years. I've been running Revenue Breakthrough, and I got to this point where I was filling a three day event, and I wanted, uh, and it was uh, one of my big signature events, and I wanted two hundred people in the room. And it, and it was filling relatively slowly. We were doing all of our marketing activities, but I was sort of annoyed. It felt like pulling teeth. And we got to about 120 people registered. And, and it was probably four weeks, four or five weeks before the event. And in one week, we had 40 people back out of the event. And it was, and they all had real reasons for not, you know, it wasn't like, you know, some, some PR disaster. Like they all had individual reasons for not wanting to come. But in that moment, I got really clear that something internal was going on with me. 
Okay. That was causing this external effect to happen. And so I, I went to a meditation teacher, a spiritual teacher, and I asked her what she thought was going on. And we looked at it and we realized that I was holding on to some beliefs that if I stood in front of a, if I stood in front of more than 200 people, something terrible would happen. And mm. so literally I was causing, um, like every time we got to a certain number, I, you know, we'd have to go back to a smaller number. And we looked at that, we cleared it, we created new beliefs around it, uh, brought some awareness to it. And then suddenly I had my motivation back and we ended up actually filling that event to well over 200 people. And I, in that, in that process really started to get that there's multiple levels to everything that's happening to us in our lives, right? There's the execution level where you're just trying to do your marketing and do your sales, but there's also the spiritual level where you've got your faith and your trust and your surrender. And then there's the belief level where you've got all this stuff going on in your head, what the voices in your head are telling you. Right. And that fundamentally, if you're not looking at all three levels, you, you're going to miss something force. Like you right. end up just pushing through things that aren't working instead of identifying, okay, what level is this really not working on? Why does it feel harder than it needs to be? Mm. And I, that really got me into a practice actually of spirituality and meditation. I actually got trained to be a healer wow. so that I not only could teach the business side to my clients, but that I also could look at what the underlying beliefs are that were getting in their way when, when they, when they were stuck. And it also had me really start to recognize that sometimes the greatest epiphanies come in the most quiet moments when you're slowing down, mm. when you're in the shower or when you're riding your bike or when you're taking a moment to zone out in the middle of the day. Mm. And I started yes. to, and for a lot of people that happens when you're journaling. So I started to do all these questions with my clients like that were reflective questions and exercises about who they were and what they believed in and what some underlying truths were for them. And they really liked the exercises. And so I ended up putting all of them into a book. And the book is called Pause, 52 Questions That Lead to More Time and Money. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and it's a book that has a story and questions that relate to the story, whether it's about your spiritual path or whether um, it's about what you're struggling on. And it's, it's really the whole mission is that everybody needs to take a 10-minute pause every single week, if not every day, and just let the universe give you the answers that you're looking for so that you're not working so hard to make things happen. Mm. Yeah. I remember, uh, I just told this story on the last show, but I'm going to do it again cause it's good. <laughs> but you know, I heard the suggestion, I think it was from Wayne Dyer and one of his tapes or books was when, was when you're in that frantic panic you know, and it can be at work or whatever, right? And you're in emer emergency mode in your body. The best thing you can do is just, you know, take a break. <laughs> totally sounds counterintuitive, but I, it happened to me where uh, I was like uh, at work and I was already frantically busy. And, uh, and my boss comes in like they tend to do and uh, says like, hey, you got five minutes. You got to build me a report. And, uh, I'm going to go show it to the commander and make sure I look cool. Right. <laughs> One of those things. And, uh, yeah. and I was like, okay. So I closed the door of the office and I just said, I got five minutes to write a report. 
I'm going to take 30 seconds to be quiet. And it totally worked. You know, it's, uh, it's just going to that place, you know, a, a meditator will know that place, you know, it's just quieting the mind. It's not like not thinking, it's just watching your thoughts and just being quiet. And I only had 30 seconds. So I did it for 30 seconds. You know, it's about 10 breaths worth maybe. Um, but yeah, I ended up writing the report and having extra time, you know, that's just how the universe works in my mind now <laughs> is, is the answer is always slowing down. It's not getting more, more what, like frantic. It's not that. It's not at all. I mean, it, it's yeah. proven in the brain that your prefrontal cortex, which is the brain, the part of the brain we use for most of our day yeah. is great. It's a leader. It's a director. It's a planner. It's a manager, yeah. but that your creative ideas and your inspiration ideas actually come from the medial, the parietal cortex, which are on different aspects. They're just further back in the brain. And that when the prefrontal cortex is running the show, those parts of the brain are actually turned off. So the only way to get inspired by a brand new idea or creative way to solve a problem is to actually not have it be driven by thinking about it. Correct. So often <laughs> that's why like when you're showering or when you're doing yoga, your prefrontal cortex is not actually running yeah. and you're allowing the other parts of your brain to take over. And that's, that's what the 10 minute pause is all about is like giving your your, your prefrontal cortex a break and allowing the other parts of your brain that are actually responsible for creativity and innovation and intuition be able to have a say at the table. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to drop a bomb on you that I hope you like, but I just listened to a Tim Ferriss podcast and one of his guests, I can't remember the dude's name, Michael Pullman, something like that. He wrote a book about psychedelics. Um, but he, he came up with, I guess, neuroscientists came up with this new, new term that I had never heard before that I really like. And they call it the default mode network. I love that <laughs> default mode network. And that is basically um, what neuroscientists are now calling the mechanism in the brain that runs the ego. Right. And certain, you know, now it, I'll, I'll skip over the part about psychedelics because it's a whole thing that people get excited about and maybe scared, but you know, psychedelics properly used basically turn down the volume on anybody, any human on that, what they call that default mode network to the point where it's not off, but you know, it's quiet. Right. And you can, it, the effect is, is it, um, it, it breaks down rigidity in your ego, essentially. So and I was like, oh, yeah, that's all. You know, forget about all the psychedelics because, you know, you can get there with meditation. You can get there through all kinds of uh, breathing exercises. There are multiple pathways. Um, so psychedelics is just one of many. And uh, I've never tried psychedelics, but I was just like, wow, default mode network. It's so because I'm a nerd, right? <laughs> it makes sense to me. You know, everybody knows what default mode is, right? It's us walking around, you know, you know, thinking we're here uh, in a body, right? That's default mode. Um, anytime you can come up with a new way of talking about it and making it quiet, um, is, uh, 
always fascinating to me. So yeah. Anyway, so there we go. I propagated the wave of de- default mode network. Sorry about that. Uh, I was on my soapbox. So uh, this has been a blast. So as we wrap up, let's nerd out a little bit because I know you are into cupcakes and sci-fi. So <laughs> what 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 are what shows are you into now that we might be able to chat about? Um. Well, I, uh, I mean, I think I've got my old shows and my current shows. Okay. <laughs> so, what, but, what, what current um, shows? Into, yeah. I really like the, the, you know, an old classic sci-fi is the Battlestar Galactica. The right. one with the, with, uh, the, the newer version, the, not reboot. the original version right, right. with the female lead. Um, absolutely loved that. Me too. Um, and then I'm also a big fan of the vampires. So I'm really enjoying the originals, the last season of that. Of I'm going to have show. to get into the originals because you're not the first person that's told me that it was pretty good. Is that a CW show too? It is a CW show. Right. So me and all of the 12 to 15 year old girls out there <laughs> are watching it together. Eating cupcakes, right? <laughs> I love it. I love that you love sci-fi and uh, and we're both bummed that uh, Game of Thrones, you told me, is not coming back until 2019. Damn it. I know. I love Game of Thrones. We like we look forward to every Sunday, but it's not coming back until 2019. So we're going to have to wait a year. But this last season, I, I, I think you remember the episode where um, she finally flew the dragons ac- across that battlefield. I watched that scene like eight times, I think, <laughs> over and over and over. It was just so amazing. I was like, yay, finally. <laughs> I know. We get I to love see, the dragons. I, we get to see, yeah, Danny and the dragons. I remember when, you know, they first came alive and, you know, she's burnt up and naked and, and the baby dragons are climbing all over and you're like, where's this going? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah. Amazing stuff. Thank you, Monica. This has been a blast. I appreciate you being here. I, I appreciate being invited, Jeff. It's been so fun and, and I love talking about all of this stuff. So people can get in touch with you at uh, rev. Sorry, make sure I get this right. Revenuebreakthrough.com. So tell us uh, the best way to get in, in touch with Monica Shaw. Um, yeah, so you can email us at uh, support at revenuebreakthrough.com. Um, Perfect. And you can get in touch with us that way. And then if you're interested in learning more about what revenue generating activities are and how to plan out your marketing calendar, we have a report that's a done for you marketing calendar. Wow, nice. And you can get that at revenuebreakthrough.com front slash marketing calendar. Revenuebreakthrough.com front slash marketing calendar. Thank you, Monica. This has been a blast. Thank you. It's been so great. And I, I'm so excited to all, to be able to talk about all of it from sci-fi to money. <laughs> Cupcakes. Yay. <laughs> all right. Have a good one. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V double E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer. That was just practice. That was practice. Okay. Got it. This is, this is the deal now. Okay, here we okay. go. Outtakes and everything. Hey, if you like this show, check out Dreamcast with my buddy, Denise Walsh, where, yeah, yeah, there she is. Uh, She combines science, scripture, and stories to help you design a life of your dreams and check it out at denisewalsh.com. That's a very um, easy 
URL to remember. Check it out. And thanks, Denise. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now I'm going to hit stop. Did okay. you like it? Was that good? Yeah, that'll be fun. Okay, cool.